Thank you for tuning in. I'm Eric Sky, And I'm Ben Wade. The following podcast was created by Colorado Water Conservation Board staff as a special two-part release highlighting the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. This is episode two, Everyone Forgets There's a Fish. So if you haven't listened to episode one, it provides a lot of great background and history on the Platte River Program. So go ahead and listen to that. Come right back when you're done. And we'd love to continue making more of these. So let us know what topics you'd like to hear us cover in the future. Send all feedback and suggestions as a direct message on Twitter at CWCB underscore DNR. Hey, Jojo, why don't we have you reintroduce yourself to our audience and then just give us a quick recap. Sure. Thanks, Ben. So my name is Jojo Law, and I'm the Colorado Water Conservation Board Endangered Species Policy Specialist. And I have the privilege of participating in the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. And just to recap from last episode, we took time to go over the historical context of the program and how we got to this point now. And during this episode, we're going to go into the current, what the current state of the program is and where we're going in the future. All right. So, Jojo, this was recorded. These, this workshop audio was recorded back in June of 2018. Bring us up to speed where we're at right now. Sure. Yeah, the purpose of the 2018 workshop was really to prepare the CWCB and our representatives to negotiate for the end of the first increment. So to remind folks about the Platte Recovery Program, the program works in different increments, different 13-year increments. So the first increment lasting 13 years was from 2007 to 2019. And so we were hard at work trying to negotiate the program, and we wanted to get uh, a workshop together to try to understand, you know, where we've come from and where we might be going. So currently, we are in the first increment extension, what we're calling the extension, and we're extending the first increment for another 13 years. And throughout this episode, you'll you'll learn why we um, extended the first 13 years. Really, the major benefit that this program provides to the water users is not only does it conserve endangered species in Nebraska, but it also provides a way to have a streamlined uh, effect for permitting So, and how we meet those requirements of the Endangered Species Act. So prior to the program, as we spoke in episode one, it was, water users were really going through a really lengthy regulatory process. So even one project that would use less than a single acre foot of water per year um, because the Fish and Wildlife Service was concerned that the species in Nebraska would be affected, that that one acre foot per year would have to be mitigated on a one-to-one basis. So through the program's a- efforts, our water users have now a easier way to permit their projects. And Colorado water users participate and pay a separate group called the South Platte Water Related Activities Program, or we call it South Platte RAP. And that's how they obta- obtain their compliance. All right, so this next clip, Deb Freeman's going to dig into those Endangered Species Act uh, compliance benefits just a little bit more. Back in the day, forget the substance of having to come up with the offsetting measures. Back in the day when you did ESA compliance procedurally, you had to, as a project applicant, help prepare a biological assessment Uh, describing your project and specifically analyzing all the effects of your project on species located a couple hundred miles downstream. That required um, identification of specific water rights, 
consumptive use, timing, depletion signatures, modeling of the hydrology, modeling of the biology, just to get the show on the road toward ESA compliance. That biological assessment, then if there was a may effect on listed species, you had to go into formal consultation, and the service, every entity going through the process, they kind of reinvented the wheel and wrote a lengthy biological opinion, starting with the whole history of the species, its life history stages, how it is doing, the effect of your project on it, and on and on and on. Um, what the program does is offer a way to not have to do that on a project-specific analytical basis. So um, the way the program is set up, first of all, the program itself got a programmatic biological opinion. There was a biological opinion completed just about the time that the um, program documents were completed. It was in the, the uh, end of the year in 2006, before formal establishment of the program. That programmatic biological opinion uh, completed ESA compliance on some specific federal projects. Um, CBT on the East Slope, uh, the North Platte projects and whatnot of reclamation, but also analyzed if what the program was doing was a sufficient offset, so to speak, for existing and new water-related activities pursuant to the program documents. And it concluded that, in fact, yes, that was so that what the program was bringing to the table for the duration of the first increment was a sufficient offset on the merits to address existing and new water-related activities. That enables Colorado water users and water users in the other states to simplify their compliance procedures. That's where streamlining comes in. Streamlined consultations tear into that existing programmatic biological opinion, so they don't have to repeat the modeling, they don't have to repeat the analysis of effects. And the way the process works, just, um, just quickly, is that, um, and, and this is a process that uh, uh, has worked better at some junctures and less better at others. We've tried to tighten it up a bit. But there is a worksheet that is very short, it's a page or so, and you describe um, an act, the activity, the proposed project, uh, its location, who the applicant is. You describe just generally the type of water. Is it new native water that you're consulting on, or is it non-trib water or transbasin or whatever? Your uh, volume in terms of acre feet associated with it. Oh, and whether it's existing or new as of the baseline of the program. You describe those things on a worksheet. That helps populate what we call a template BA, which is really a fill-in-the-blanks short document. That goes into Fish and Wildlife Service through the Action Agency, and the service issues a template or form BO. So there is no separate 
and that analytic process that applies to your project going through consultation. Um, we're going to get into, in, in just a minute, what that means from the standpoint of SPRAP and membership in SPRAP, because a condition of doing that is you have to show a certificate that you are a, in a, a participating member in SPRAP to be able to benefit from that streamlined, tiered little consultation. In a perfect world, these should go very quickly. Um, from a practical standpoint, uh, consultations are, they tend to get processed in the order in which the service receives them, and sometimes there's delay, but it is nothing like what we had prior to the program. Um, and it's, it's, it should be measured in terms of weeks or months and not multiple years, which was the case before. And Jojo, Deb said a couple of acronyms that I'm not entirely sure our um, listeners may be familiar with. So would you go ahead and kind of explain what the biological opinion is and what a biological assessment is and kind of why this overall programmatic biological opinion is just saving so much time? Yeah. And so what Deb is saying is one of the most powerful parts of the recovery program and why almost 200 water projects are a part of this program. And basically, to summarize it in a few sentences, any time that a new water project goes for environmental permitting and a water project takes water out of the South Platte River or depletes water, they have to do an environmental assessment that shows what the effects downstream on the birds and the fish will be in Nebraska and how they're going to mitigate those impacts to the, the species downstream. And it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of money and time to make those assessments and how you're going to mitigate it. And that's exactly what the program does. We already assessed and did the uh, environmental analysis to be able to determine for a set number of acre feet of water per year what those effects would be on the birds. And the program mitigates those effects for the species downstream. So not only is it an easier way for water projects to permit their projects, but the program also replaces those depletions downstream by doing mitigation actions, as we talked about in episode one. One of the biggest successes of the program is recovering the species, and that's why we're in it, is for recovery. And you'll hear a little bit more from Kevin Urey, who will describe the current status of the three birds and um, how the program has responded to habitat creation and augmenting target flows in the Central Platte area. And what are those three birds again? Yeah, Jojo, we, some of us have adult ADD. Could you please go over that again? Yeah, so the three birds are the whooping crane. Whooping crane. The least turns in the piping plover. And and I think we're forgetting something. That's right. Don't forget. <laughs> Everyone forgets about the fish. And the fish is actually the pallid sturgeon. And um, a fun fact about this fish, this dinosaur fish, is that instead of scales on its back, it actually has these plates. Um, and it, it's quite a large fish, but it's hard to find. So... And it is one of the ugliest things you've ever seen in your entire life. I'm, ugh, it's awful. But try not to think about that while we listen to Kevin Yeri talk about the species. I can give you a report on hooping cranes. Um, hooping crane numbers have been going up uh, very well. I think uh, uh, when we really entered into the program, uh, 
the population of the migratory whoopers was around 181 birds. Um, and, I, and I remember looking just this week back at some references. I had recalled in my mind a, about 115, but that was about the time we started negotiating the cooperative agreement. There were about 115 birds in that population. By the time we got to 2007 in the program implementation, we're up to 181. Current estimates of that population are right in the 380 to 430 bird range. Uh, part of that uncertainty is based on a new uh, um, counting methodology that was implemented by USGS last fall. So there's a little bit of uncertainty, but it's somewhere in that 400 range right now. So the hooping trains uh, are doing quite well. Uh, an item of interest may be uh, this spring's migration. Uh, we had the most number of hooping trains stop on the Central Platte region as we've ever seen. And I think we had over 100 birds stop over on the Platte. I can tell you historically, uh, since the program's been in place, it was pretty uncommon to see more than a family group of three or four. And often we had a single juvenile bird hanging out with Sandale cranes for multiple days. But So, you know, if that's an indication of bird response from the hooping trains to management activities, I'd say obviously what we're doing is working or it may be a, a little bit of an artifact of the increased number of birds. But likely they're liking what we're putting on the ground because they're using it. And a lot of that use is actually happening on habitats the program is managing. So that's pretty... Uh, Pretty exciting to, to watch. Uh, on the turns and plovers, uh, as you heard earlier, the, the lease turn uh, is in a process right now for potential delisting. Um, we have obviously been recruiting birds into that population in the Central Platte, uh, but those uh, turns have been doing quite well uh, across their range, so it looks like they are probably going to get delisted. Uh, plovers, not such a rosy story. They seem to be a a little tougher not to crack. Um, their success rates are lower, their floods ratios are quite a bit lower than turns, and, and so we're still gonna be managing for, for plovers. Um, hopefully our off-channel habitats will prove up to be, continue to be successful. It's you guys notice anything about Kevin's little speech there? He forgot about the pallid sturgeon, the ugliest fish in all of existence. But it seems to be pretty successful for the other species of yeah. the programs because they are pretty damn adorable and majestic i don't know if you've seen a piping plover but look up that google image because damn they're cute and just to further that point i know that the least turn was actually removed from the endangered species list on february 12th of 2021 so jojo what has actually led to the success of the program the reason why this program is successful is because of our adaptive management program and we are the only program in the nation that has completed one full cycle of adaptive management, as you will hear Kevin Yuri speak about in this next clip. And Eric, I did Google it, and I do want to cuddle with it. Right? Freaking adorable. The 11 hypotheses that we've really been working on were all surrounded primarily on turns and plovers and, and hooping crane habitats. Um, Couple of the hypotheses, or several of the hypotheses, were based on whether or not uh, pulse flows and high flows going down the river could actually create sandbars that are large enough and uh, high enough for turns and plovers to nest on without being inundated. Basically, what we're looking for is recruitment into the population through successful fledging or, you know, the hatching and, and fledging of birds. Um, the competing hypothesis was that. Uh, 
to that one was creating off-channel habitats and existing or even created newly created gravel pits. And you know, as you can imagine, on channel we get these summer flows that can peak uh, or, st or storms that peak and and other operations that can inundate really low sandbars. Whereas on gravel pits, we have a pretty good controlled environment. We have kind of the water. Uh, uh, security boundary kind of a moating type approach to the habitats that they use and it, at the end of the day what we've discovered we've had some natural events uh, in the channel habitats that have come in the past several years that have been over 10,000 CFS for weeks on end and so that far surpassed any of the kind of pulse flows that we could have sent down the system with our management so that was pretty informative thankfully we had some some really good uh, transect data already going. And, and after that event, it became very obvious that these gravel bars or sandbars that uh, I think the service specifically believed could be created with those high events just weren't there. They, they weren't created. Uh, there were sandbars, but they were pretty low level and, and clearly not high enough to avoid uh, inundation of the future. Conversely, these gravel pits off-channel We've had incredible success at managing those. Uh, we've had incredible use. We've had really great pledge ratios off of those. And, and so when your objective is to create birds to the population or add birds to the population, we've clearly figured out that off-channel habitats by far are our best friend. And so kind of cycling back on this concept of adaptive management and the cycle of adaptive management, this really gets to the crux of the issue, and, and our data and testing of these competing hypotheses has given us scientific data that says off-channel habitats are doable. There was concerns with that from the service about forage fish and you know uh, food availability for plovers, but that hasn't proved out. They're obviously doing quite well there. So we were able to put that into our cycle of adaptive management, where we put it on the ground, we collected data, uh, we did the monitoring of that data, and did an evaluation. We've had a lot of peer review of that data done, and at the end of the day, it, it got our program um, to the final stage of adaptive management, and that is the adjustment phase, where it's like, okay, your, your information's telling you this is the way to go. And, and so, you know, with the lead of the EDO's office, we uh, hired a third-party uh, consultant out of Vancouver to help us do a really structured decision-making process with the governance committee. It was basically a, a few-day effort to sit down and and look at what had been found, you know, what the science was saying, um, and it made you know it was pretty insightful because, as I articulated before, a lot of times the federal lead agency kind of has the trump card, and we knew that we had to get the Fish and Wildlife Service on board with this idea, and they had to be part of the decision-making process on the adjustment. And so the governance committee spent some time with the guidance of this consultant, and and at the end of the day, the conclusion was that you know we ought not be spending our resources on on-channel habitat for terns and plovers, and and that our uh, off-channel is the best avenue to go. And and so that's where we've gone. We've actually completed a full cycle of adaptive management, which I don't believe any other uh, program in the country has actually done. So that's a pretty big feather in our cap. Okay, that's pretty cool. So the first increment only started in 2007, and we already have scientific, conclusive scientific evidence that these off-channel gravel pits are really better habitat. And I think that that's just really a testament 
to this program's adaptive management and their ability to go through and figure out, hey, this really is the best route for these species. So I imagine that throughout all of that, they've come into other challenges. So what might some of those be? So one of the biggest issues on the river in the Central Platte area is actually um, this weed that we call Phragmites australis. The common name is common reed. And the issue with this Phragmites is really a water conveyance issue. When we started this program back in 2007, you know, we have before and after photos that show how restricted the river was. And historical um, evidence do show that the Platte River is a highly braided, open, wide channel. And in 2008, the river was really constricted due to this this uh, weed. And someone once told me that we actually don't control Phragmites. We don't burn it. We don't um, spray for it. We actually just anger it. So it's a really difficult weed to control. Wait, we just anger it? It's like the Hulk of invasive species. So here's Ellen Berryman and Kevin Yuri talking about Phragmites. Phragmites was something we didn't know about. <laughs> When we first started negotiating, never heard of them. Uh, it didn't take us long once Phragmites started uh, showing up down there to know that it choked off the river very significantly. And in fact, we've even had what flooding events that have been 14, 15,000 that were for Phragmites were existing. They just bend over and come right back up and, and we don't get rid of it. So if you're looking for a wider, shallower river and Phragmites get in the way, that, that's a whole new impediment that we never had before in, in trying to make that kind of a habitat available. In fact, it's just, yeah, Phragmites, if you've ever seen it, it's just, a, I guess, what, about 8, 10, 12 feet tall, uh, kind of a reedy uh, uh, plant. If, if we were out there, we did a uh, tour one day, and we looked at a place where Phragmites had been cleared off, but the root system had developed the most amazing, um, uh, uh, they, they're living in a kind of a gooey goop, but it's like, that that's not mo moving anywhere. That That's like building a levee. Uh, once Phragmites are there, it's not just what's on top. They also have a root system that, that you're not going to get much erosion laterally at all. I mean, it, it's... It's like building a wall. Anyway, those that wasn't there when we first started, and and it's it's pretty critical now. I was just going to add a little more context to the Phragmites issue. Um, then a lot of the ma management uh, was about vegetation management and widening the channel, and, and a lot of our program was focused on that from the management side of things. And uh, we had shortly finished with really negotiating and started into the program, and and. Phragmites is an invasive species that all of a sudden just showed up in the Central Platte. And within, I think, less than two seasons, I think it was within about a season, it had gotten in there so much that it choked down the main channel flows significantly to the point that we were all scratching our heads like, wow, this is a game changer. If we can't manage this stuff, how are we going to manage the rest of the river? And, and so uh, there was significant effort put through a pretty big joint effort. The program helped fund a good portion, well, uh, probably half of it, the overall cost to basically go in with aerial helicopter spraying and spray Phragmites. And, and it's been very effective at, at controlling Phragmites. The issue is you can kill the plant, but you have a heck of a time 
removing it from the system and scouring flows don't do it. We know that and so a lot of the management that's required to deal with it is get in the river with tractors and discs and disc up that uh, sediment and, and knock it out of there and then manage it. You know, we're, we're basically going to be required to continue to manage that probably in perpetuity because I don't think eradication is possible. So. Okay, so that kind of catches us up to where we are today. But I guess one thing that's been rattling around my brain for these past couple episodes is what do you mean by extension and why are we doing an extension as opposed to, say, a second increment? Right. And what you'll hear Alan speak about in the next clip is that one of the components that we were not able to meet in the first increment was actually the water milestone. As we started to develop projects and, you know, got the land milestone under control, we currently provide 12,000 acres of land and our goal was 10,000 acres. And working on the water milestone, it proved to be a lot harder because water, as we know in Colorado, is very difficult to come by and it's very expensive. And so the program partners decided that we just needed more time. And instead of starting with the second increment, which would include more negotiation, maybe a discussion about milestones, we just decided to extend the program for another 13 years so we can get to our and accomplish our water milestone. And in fact, here is Alan Berryman from Northern Water talking about the water milestone. When we entered into the cooperative agreement in 1997, we already knew that the three states were going to commit their three projects, and they scored at 80,000 acre feet. So that left uh, the 50 to 70,000 acre feet that we needed to meet our 130 to 150 goal. Um, you know, first thing that happened, we, we got a... Uh, an agreement with Wyoming to get water out of Pathfinder, and it was 4,800, but since then that's even gotten larger from our experience over time, and it's what now 6,000 or so of score, so that gave us a pretty good chunk. Phelps, Phelps County, or the Phelps Canal recharge has come in at 2,500, 3,000 somewhere. That's going down a little now. Wow. So. Anyway, we've, we've got some of those kind of things, little ones that are, are probably 10,000 or something like that. We had to really look at different ways to get water. And uh, John's done his share of preaching uh, groundwater recharge, and it's actually taken, taken hold down in Nebraska now. Uh, we've got several recharges, Elwood Reservoir, uh, some things that are, you know, we, we've looked at existing-wise. So we've identified about 20,000 acre-feet over the 80 of kind of existing projects uh, that you know gets us up to 100,000. So under the extension, we're saying we're going to have a goal, for sure goal, of 120,000 acre feet per year and decide if we really need that extra 10,000 because it gets more expensive. So to get the first 20,000 over 80,000, it, it's going to cost us uh, a I don't know, about $34 million uh, to do that. To get the next 20000 uh, on the proposed projects we got, right now the, the cost is about $48 million. So every time you go a little farther down the road, it gets more and more difficult. Our, the cost per acre foot goes up. Uh, but we have identified enough projects that would get us to the, the one point. Again, they aren't nearly as clean and neat and, and flexible as J2, but uh, 
they can actually help us get our our goal under the extension, which is 120, and then a look and see is it worth it to try to get the extra 10 because the last 10,000 may cost us, you know, 30 or 40 million just for that. So here we are. It's 2021 now. It's been about three years since we held this workshop to try and get all of this historical knowledge into our heads. So, Jojo, where do you see the next 13 years of the extension going and even beyond that? Yeah. And so, as we've mentioned throughout this episode, we are all set on our land milestone. We have a little ways to go on our water milestone, but we have a plan to be able to get there. And our adaptive management program is very successful. And one of the reasons why the success in this program is a topic of today's talk is because one of the biggest questions or one of the most common questions that I got during this extension and negotiating the extension is, Jojo, I wasn't aware that the program had an end date or that we needed to reauthorize the program or renew the program. And it's kind of what I call a failure of silent success. Because this program has representatives at the state level and at the water users level through SPRAP to not only negotiate on behalf of the water users to make sure that the program is successful, but also to make sure we're meeting our milestones you know, it's it's kind of this forgotten thing that the program is the reason why over almost 200 water projects are, are able to operate is because of this program. And so as we navigated through some of that education and outreach to say, yes, we continue to need water users' help. We continue to need to reauthorize this program. We need we need to talk about the second increment, and we need to keep the subject relevant. And that's why we're talking about it. It took 13 years to negotiate the first 13 years of the program. And as we're looking out to 2032, what do we need to talk about now with our water users in the state of Colorado to be able to prepare us and set up for the next 13 years for the second increment? That's what we need to talk about. And as you notice throughout this episode and the panelists, we don't even talk about the fish. And it is one of the most difficult problems that we will have to solve as a program and as a state. This fish is very much endangered. It doesn't even occur in the Central Platte. Uh, area. So not only is it two states away from Colorado, but we just don't know much about it. And all of our focus has been on the birds. And so as we transition into how do we address and do no harm and try to recover this fish, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to um, do different management actions, different adaptive management uh, solutions? What does that mean? And it's going to take the best scientists and biologists out there to figure out what's next. And that, I think, what I, is what I'll spend the rest of my career doing, at least for the next 13 years, to try to find this fish. So that's really your thought for the extension, is to really focus in on the fish and try and figure out how we can help them out? So in addition to the fish, I think that as you'll hear in the next audio clip, a second increment is is everything's on the table. What milestones will we in Colorado have for the next increment? What will we need to resolve and recover the birds? How will we need to address once we get to the 130,000 
acre feet of water. What does that mean? Does that mean how do we figure out how to use that water in the future? What would be most beneficial to the species? So we have a lot to talk about. And what we can do as water users and as as water representatives at the Colorado Water Conservation Board is continue to learn from our past and from the people who negotiated the program in the first place and try to do our best to represent what we in the state of Colorado think is best for our water users. What I gathered is that basically you're with the CWCB through 2032 and beyond. (laughs) That's what I gathered. And then she's running for president. (laughs) 2032. <laughs> well, thank you, Jojo. I mean, there's certainly you've got your work cut out for you in the next 13 years and yep. beyond. Um, and just to kind of wrap things up, we have one last little clip from that workshop that we held. And this is Kevin Yuri kind of giving us some sage advice about what to expect next for the next increment negotiations. One of the things that occurs to me is that the way and the conditions that things are today that we're talking about were certainly different than they were when we first started negotiating this. And I can almost assure you that when you guys start to negotiate the second increment of this program, it's going to be different again. And so just think about that. Um, You know, this is a never-changing game. And your knowledge base, hopefully, from what we've been able to give you guys over the last two days and, and as things move forward and your knowledge increases, you'll be in a great position for whatever circumstances are presented to you. Thank you again for listening, and be sure to subscribe to the Colorado Water Conservation Board on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow CWCB on Twitter at CWCB underscore DNR and Instagram at CO Water Conservation Board for updates on future podcasts, as well as to stay informed on water updates across the state.